Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 20 of The Pick List, and it's almost the end of October. I don't know where the year's gone, but what we do have is an amazing pick list this week for folks. Before we chat about who's on the show, tell me about your week. What have you been up to? Writing, writing, writing. I'm still on deadline. I've got a really big uh, deadline for an article coming up next week. So I'm just getting my head down and uh, and, and churning out those words, doing lots of interviews, um, going through my notes and, and yeah, just making sure I hit that deadline next week. Um, how about you? Yeah, another busy week for Laban Park Consulting uh, and our Chaired in Industry meeting this week. So it's always fascinating to hear what's going on out there in the food industry. Tell us who we've got on the show this week. Well, we are really excited to have our first retailer guest on the pick list. We are joined by Sophie Throop. Sophie is Head of Agriculture, Fisheries and Sustainable Sourcing at Morrison. She is a brilliantly knowledgeable person about all things food, farming and groceries and just a fascinating guest to discuss a whole wide range of articles with. Sophie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me along. Really, uh, really looking forward to being involved here. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to food and grocery? Okay, so my name is Sophie Throop. So I look after um, agriculture, fisheries and sustainable sourcing for Morrison's, uh, the supermarket. Um, So I've been with Morrison's for coming up three years. Um, Really, really having a brilliant time. Absolutely love it in retail. Um, I started off in retail, actually, on the graduate scheme with ASDA quite a few years ago now. I like hate to think how many years. Um, And I was there um, sort of on their store scheme. But then I went into corporate affairs and PR for a few years. Then when the children were born, I left um, to be at home because we're farmers at home. And so it was the opportunity to sort of give the children um, a sort of like a, a mum at home time and sort of spend some time on the ho- at home uh, with James and the children. And then um, I started to feel I needed some independent income, to be honest, and uh, a bit more sort of socialising and, and people and interaction. So um, I did I'd done a few bits of freelancer things. So I did... Uh, uh, a friend of a friend had a her vet practice um, and uh, he was looking at somebody who could help them take it along and look at different ways for vets to do their job. So I ended up um, helping set up a research and training business for a national vet company. Uh, and then I kept coming across retail ag teams uh, at the more sort of government projects we did. And I was like, God, that's such a cool job. I really, really want to do that. So, um, so yeah, so then John McMorrison's came up and yeah, full circle back into retail. Fantastic. And this is such an interesting time to be in retail as well. We're so excited to have you on um, and uh, and talk to you about uh, about what it's like and, and, and how you've experienced the recent months as well. But why don't you tell us about the first article that you've brought along for us? 
Thank you. Yes, I will. So you might sort of expect this being an agriculturist at heart and uh, I'm really, really fascinated by agriculture and climate and, you know, how we can all play our part. But uh, the first article that I've picked is from the Express and Star and it's called Planting Underway, a wet farming trial to protect peat in the climate fight. So I was so interested in this article. It's basically about uh, Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Northamptonshire Wildlife Trust, who um, are working with um, a great fen project in, e in East Anglia to understand, and they've got some grant funding as well, to understand how they can start to regenerate um, peat bogs, um, not only as a way of sequestering carbon, so you know, storing carbon, which we all really need as part of our regenerative farming system, but rather than just repairing these peat bogs, actually looking at a way that they could even make them pay so uh, they're sort of starting to look at uh, they I mean they have such fabulous names as well so they're planting these peat bogs with like manor grass and reed and bull rushes I mean manor grass is apparently like a wild grain that could be an alternative cereal crop but um, they were also sort of like uh, planting with sphagnum moss which is just like the most fabulous name um, which has been really um, proven to help with um, wildlife and already sort of like because we've seen an increase in wildlife and insects but then um, close to everybody's heart, probably, um, they were also sort of starting to do sort of mixed planting trials on watercress and wild celery and meadow sweet and bog myrtle, which can be flavourings for gin. So they were sort of thinking about, you know, how we could sort of use these peat bogs. And so I'm just really interested in regenerative agriculture and this positive role that farming has to play in the whole climate debate. You know, we you say it's an exciting time for retail. It's also a really exciting time for farming. We're in the most seismic time for farming and the biggest periods of change that there have been for, you know, generations. Um, and so to be able to sort of be part of understanding how farming has this positive role in, in sort of like it's the landscape that we uh, that we all farm to help with the climate, I think is really, really fascinating. Um, I also loved with having this background as well in sort of looking at research and veterinary research, um, the article mentions quite uh, quite a lot about the University of East, of East London that the, uh, that the team are working with. And I think it's so important to get researchers, you know, out of the lab and into the field, literally, over the coming years to sort of bring that amazing knowledge that they have about plants and about soils to help farmers on the ground understand how they can use that talent to, to help and sort of benefit the climate as well. So I just thought it was such an interesting article, had so many things to sort of start you pinging off some thoughts about. And uh, yeah, a good one to start to share, hopefully. I love the article and the first paragraph got me with the mention of gin, which made me yeah. keep on reading. And when, when you think of that and the output into consumer products, and you, I, I guess we hear all the time about these different projects, but this one's really struck me as one that could potentially reach to the end consumer and they could understand a bit more about it because it's always hard, I think, in farming. We always have some projects, but we keep them quite hidden from the end consumer. Mm. But something like this, could it cut through and and consumers understand more about the the great work here and more broadly I guess in regen what do you always think it's hard to explain some of that to the end consumer 
Yeah, I think I think it is. But I actually really liked the article uh, as well. I think they were sort of trying to appeal to chefs and, you know, local sort of people of interest about how they could maybe go and harvest some of these products to use in their own, you know, sort of mini distilleries or, you know, or yeah. restaurants or anything. And I think that sort of engagement with our landscapes and how we can sort of all be part of our landscape, you know, as, as a, in appropriate areas, obviously, is also really important, you know, about how we have that connection back to our food. And so where we're able to, it's not just this distant thing that happens somewhere else but it's a process that we can all understand and be involved in I think is really important so yeah really it had lots to give I think that article yeah I, th I thought it was fantastic and, and as you say I think just some of the names are just brilliant I mean Bob Myrtle <laughs> and, uh, and and so on but I think you're absolutely right I think it's um, it can be quite challenging I think to engage consumers around um, topics like regenerative agriculture and and so having projects like these where actually as a consumer you can draw that clear line between some of these practices and a really exciting product that performs um, in, in in terms of taste and, and, and in terms of product experience but has that additional layer as well that, that has a sort of really accessible sustainability story connected to that as well I think that's really exciting and Nora, as you you know, I had the exact same experience. You sort of, even just from a storytelling point of view, the minute you start grounding that in a tangible product that I understand that I can see myself buying, it just it makes it so much easier to engage with that if you're not well versed in in the topic already. So um, yeah, I thought it was a really fascinating piece. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, if you can feel better that you're helping to save the planet whilst drinking gin, I mean, that is really a double win. <laughs> Total. I'm up for that. <laughs> Julia, what's your first story this week? So my first pick this week is from Bloomberg, and it's an article titled Online Associate is the Retail Job of the Future. This is an article that looks at how retailers and specifically non-food retailers in the UK, uh, in the US rather, are looking to make their e-commerce platforms more personal, more interactive and more engaging. And they're doing so via virtual consultations. So they're essentially taking something that makes the in-store shopping experience engaging and personal and allows you to upsell, namely getting advice from and interacting with staff and then recreating that experience in an online setting. And the article pulls out some really interesting examples of some retailers that are already doing this. Lululemon, for example, has been offering consultations via Zoom, where you have an online retail assistant chatting to you, finding out what kind of workouts you're into, what sorts of products you're looking for, and then picks out products specifically for you, making sure it's the right size and that you understand the sizing. And uh, Neiman Marcus in the US is using interactive quizzes to help consumers navigate their online ranges. And they're also interestingly encouraging in-store staff to use mobile apps to offer style advice to online shoppers and nurture one-on-one -on -one customer relationships, which they say can boost spending by as much as six times. So it's every reason uh, for, for retailers to, to try and get this right. And what the article makes clear is a lot of this was already something that retailers were looking at before COVID, but the pandemic and the massive move to online shopping that we've seen has definitely accelerated these moves. 
the pressure definitely is on to capture these new online shoppers and to stand out from the crowd. And so experience and providing a, an engaging experience is becoming a much more important consideration within e-commerce. So that means things like video chats, things like quizzes, things like live streaming, but also blurring the line between in-store and online experiences. And I thought this was just really, really interesting. And it did make me wonder how this approach could play out in grocery. And I did wonder whether personalized diet and nutrition advice might be an area where we could see some, some retailers potentially um, trying out some of these, these formats. We've already seen some of them experimenting with this as an in-store service. So I do wonder if that's something that could work in a virtual setting. There definitely would appear to be enough consumer interest, I think, in some of that more personalized um, diet or, or nutrition advice. I suppose one of the difficulties is going to be around scalability and making the costs work. There's no surprise, I think, that in the examples in this particular article, you know, they were essentially from upmarket fashion brands um, where you're talking about quite high priced items. But, you know, perhaps tied to a loyalty scheme, I, I could really see that this sort of level of personal interaction and advice to, could drive loyalty in online grocery and help with product discovery as well. So I'll be really fascinated to see if this is something that we'll start seeing more in the UK in general, but also whether it's something that we'll start seeing in a grocery context as well. Sophie, what did you make of it? Yeah, I thought it was really, really fascinating, actually, you know, sort of reflecting that it's quite often a very one-way experience when you're doing online shopping. Um, and you're sort of... Um, and, you know, obviously with the article that we're talking about with that sort of high fashion brands, how many times have we ordered something that wasn't quite right when we got home and, uh, you know, it wasn't quite the size we wanted or anything. So I definitely saw the benefit there. Um, and, and that sort of um, engagement with a colleague uh, who was also going to be on the other end of the phone and just give you a bit more of that theatre or that experience or that sort of personal touch. I could really understand where that could have a value. I agree with you in terms of scaling, though. Um, and I'm not quite sure, you know, in core, as you say, corporates, I'm probably not going to need somebody to advise me of which beans I want. <laughs> However, you know, sort of like some more sort of um, intricate products, so potentially something sort of really special, sort of, it's kind of those special occasions piece. I mean, you talked about the, you know, nutrition advice, but it's also perhaps, you know, tempting us into having that, you know, extra bits of recipes. We know people are wanting to do so many more bits of home cooking and have been since lockdown. So, you know, is there, is there space there for that element of advice using some store cupboard essentials, you know, but whether it's um, to, to sort of really to really sort of help create um, new ideas. And so it's sort of you're just following a recipe card to get somebody to almost talk you through and, and coach you through about what you could potentially look for that was a bit different. There might even be a way of, I don't know, students sort of like learning how to cook or something. But uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was um, I thought that it's maybe that sort of experience piece was interesting to draw out. Yeah, I thought I think you raise a really fascinating point. And just hearing you talk there actually about special occasions made me think about Christmas um, and, and whether that's a potential opportunity as well. As you say, you probably don't need a sort of personalized tinned beans advisor on a daily basis. But, you know, when it comes to sort of getting these big occasions right, actually, yeah, I, I could see something like that as well. Laura, what did mm. you make of it? Yeah, I love listening to you chat about it. I, I think for uh, grocery, maybe the cookery school, as, as you um, say, so for students or some sort of Christmas cook-along, if you buy 
this selection online, then have it ready and then that's easily scalable and you can have a couple of thousand on a call and you can chat it through. The other thing, um, I've seen John Lewis trial a bit of this in the cosmetic sector here in the UK and they're trying to do more and more interactive stuff because that, that, that sector's in major challenge, isn't it? When you think it's all about experience and, and touching and feeling and trialing product in store, which is, which is out of bounds at the moment. But like that, and I guess like the article, you live and die by the quality of the people that you've got on the other line, uh, on the other end of the line rather. So if um, if these stores do train their staff well and get, empower them to be able to give that advice, then it will work a dream. But if it's an add-on to somebody's job who's scampering around the, the a department store trying to run a till or, or whatever and then oh they need to do this as well it's not going to work and you'll think oh well I, I've tried that once and the person that I got wasn't great and, and I'm all right the same as you would if you're um, if you were actually there so really interesting but the investment's going to have to be high to make sure the right people are delivering it. Nora what's your first pick? Uh, my first pick this week is from the Sunday Times and it's Jingling Tills Won't Solve a Tricky Midwinter for Supermarkets. And it was a really interesting article. Uh, and the reason I picked it, it starts from a consumer perspective and then heavily draws into the trade and, and, and what's happening. So it starts by talking about Christmas delivery slots online and the fact that Ocado slots have already gone, uh, which filled me with panic. Not that I necessarily shop with Ocado, but I thought, God, I haven't even thought about my Christmas shopping yet. Let alone where it's coming from or, or, or all the rest of it. So there's there's a scramble for online delivery slots and people t- 10 weeks out now have, have pretty much bagged them. Um, and how retail is obviously going to benefit heavily from the fact that we've got this patchwork of lockdowns across the country. We don't know what that's going to look like in, in 10 weeks time, but pubs and hotels are probably going to be under some sort of restrictions. So retail, unsurprisingly, are, are getting ready for even, even higher demand. Um, but the challenge is that retail, 12 months out, plan what Christmas is going to look like. This year, Christmas is on a Friday. There's the modelling around, well, when are people going to do the shop? Is it going to be on the Tuesday, the Wednesday? You know, and they'll, they'll be buying for the weekend and all this sort of stuff. But the the, the fact is all bets are off. And there's a great uh, quote from Andy um, Adcock saying, it's a nightmare to plan and we don't know how people are going to shop. Um, and then coupled with that, the article goes into the fact that at the end of the uh, following week, um, it's Brexit and the end of the transition period. And not only will people be shopping for their Christmas, um, but they'll also be shopping potentially for New Year. And depending on what's happening um, in the press and the, the, the hype over stockpiling, are people going to heavily stockpile thinking, well, shelves may, may be bare or there might be some some gaps in, in some lines. Um, it also talks about how people are shopping now already for, for Christmas in terms of grocery. Waitrose saying pigs in blankets and turkey sales are already double from what they were last year. Um, and historically, uh, shoppers have been doing their grocery shop for Christmas later and later. And I think it's because we've got that luxury, haven't we, of just the anticipation that every, the shelves are always full and we can go wherever we want and it's there. But shoppers are thinking now, as we've already said, that, that they need to get in early and how that will have a halo effect potentially into butchers and greengrocers too. And we saw so much of that in lockdown, didn't we, that people were shopping locally as well as into their normal supermarket. So they may have that halo effect. 
So the, the one of the lines in the article which really struck me was um, 4 million more online uh, shopping slots uh, in Christmas week than there was in 2019. Um, wow, isn't that amazing that the grocery uh, players have managed to up the capacity so much and going to be able to, to deliver. But um, there's a comment from an unnamed chairman of one of the retailers saying Brexit is happening at the worst possible time. So the retailers did an amazing job in in lockdown and kept the nation fed they're getting ready for a christmas not knowing when people are going to shop when they're going to buy and what they're going to be buying and there's that whole size of what size of turkey you're going to buy how many people you're having and then you've got the brexit end of the following week so it's a lot <laughs> and the article is great at, great at uh, mapping it out not least and there's mention of, of weather and people queuing outside in supermarket um, for supermarkets uh, when it's uh, could be driving rain so, Sophie what are your thoughts in terms of all of that and you know grocery you've got so much to deal with <laughs> absolutely I mean it's going to be sort of months like we've never seen before isn't it so just it's very difficult isn't it to understand and to visualise what it's actually going to look like because we've just not experienced it this year in itself though has just been a year of firsts across the board hasn't it so we've just had so many things to deal with and deal with quickly and you know as you say I think there's been such amazing work in the whole food chain to keep the country going and to keep everybody fed and sort of um and looked after and uh, and sort of served as best as they can so you know just the facts as you say of all those additional um, online slots that are available you know all that work that's happened during lockdown at least you know is sort of um has helped pave the way for some of that I mean I'm with you actually Laura I um had not even thought about Christmas shopping well to be honest I'm, a, I'm a, also I also quite like the experience of going to the shop and I like having a little browse around and seeing what's there and what am I tempted by and so I, I so I suppose I'm, I'm sort of less worried about the online slots but you know for a lot of people they will be really really important so I know there'll be lots of thoughts going on I'm sure in loads of different sort of like service capacities about what else can be done to sort of uh, understand how we can make sure people are fed and actually have that have that treat that we all need as well at this time of year so uh, and particularly after the year it's been in 2020 I think he needs a little bit of something to cheer them up so it's um it's a it's a really busy time a very um and just such a lot of planning going in on so many different sorts, you know, so many different sort of um, logistics and, you know, so many different sort of food service and, and uh, retail providers. So, yeah, it's going to be like nothing we've seen. I, I thought it was um, a great piece, um, also slightly anxiety in, inducing um, as, it, as it sort of forced me to think about Christmas. And I have to confess, so I um, moved to Newcastle just before Christmas last year and moving just before Christmas, uh, it's not something I'd recommend. And we were so late in getting anything organised. And at the end, it was such a stressful experience trying to do last minute shopping. We ended up having pizza um, for Christmas. So I'm really, really determined that 2020, um, that won't be that won't be repeated um so it, it just reading that article definitely made me think like I need to get um get organized to make sure that there's not a repeat of that but Sophie as you say I think um the the grocery sector and I think the entire feed industry has done such a brilliant job I think through through the earlier lockdown already 
as you say, I think they are pretty well set up to weather the storm, but it is a formidable storm that is that is coming in that combination with, you know, that hodgepodge of lockdown patterns and, and local restrictions plus Brexit. So um, I suspect we're going to see a lot of people, um, yeah, starting that planning process just a little bit earlier this year to make sure they really can get um, what, what they're trying to secure for Christmas. Mm. And it's interesting you mentioned, Sophie, that treat aspect and we all trade up a little bit apart from Julia in a pizza last year. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think you've got double the work this year then. <laughs> uh, Christmas and, you know, you throw that those extra things in the trolley because you think it's Christmas and let's. But, but retail does feel on occasions you're running in the gauntlet a little bit and will people still trade up? And, you know, what will that look like? Or will they stick to what they know? And uh, very, very interesting. I was chatting to um, a, a meat wholesaler earlier in the week and they were say, supplying uh, independent butchers predominantly in the southeast. And they were saying their customers are still 30 to 40 percent up. And even though their customers are expe- expecting to serve um, consumers with a smaller Christmas, they want different selections of meat and they really want to push the boat out. There's what, what they're feeling. Admittedly, it's a different demographic than the northeast, but be really interesting that what are people going to do and it's so hard for retailers to second guess that. Sophie what's your second pick for us? So thank you so my second pick um, well it's kind of like a bit of a, a double pick really so um, I picked an article uh, takeaway surge uh, during pandemic um, from the times which which talked um, through the phenomenal success really that Just Eat has been having um, in recent months um, uh, with you know the, the sort of surge in takeaways and people um, either through lockdown or, you know, wanting that extra bit of treats, you know, ordering more, um, more uh, products. But what made me smile was, um, was the fact that they were also attributing some of their sort of like um, surge in growth to the fact that they've got Greg sausage rolls and, uh, and to McDonald's and the Big Mac uh, in their sort of like delivery schedule as well. So that was, uh, that was really making me smile when I also read a sort of a similar time another article entitled uh, on, that was on the PR Newswires um, called Innova identifies the top 10 food and beverage trends um, to accelerate in 2021 because that very much talks about you know how it was re- how people were thinking about health and well-being and you know feeding themselves well and looking after their bodies um, to make sure that we're sort of um, keeping healthy to try and stave off any sort of um, any viruses that we may um, otherwise be succumb to and it just made me smile that you know in all that healthy living we still actually quite like a sausage roll and a Big Mac um, so uh, his diff- that sort of difference I suppose that we often see in trends is in terms of desire and um, behaviour are sometimes very different ex- different things aren't they so I said it so as I say it was sort of a bit of a double article but also within the Innova sort of piece that was really really interesting as well because one of the first thing are the top top pieces that they talked about um a number what races number one is that customers um big call for transparency and uh, we certainly you know sort of seen this in, in in various bits of customer research and customer insight I've seen um, from Kantar and this as well uh, lately um, whether it is because of the sort of um, time this year that we've behaved, our lives have been so very different. So we've had more time to think about things, perhaps in some cases, unless you've obviously been working in the food industry, in which case you've just been very, very busy. But uh, more time to perhaps look um, through and think about 
the source of our food and that provenance story. And I think that whole piece um, going into provenance of food and the transparency about where that food comes from, how has it got to our plate? You know, what's it sort of a wider story about how it was grown, where it was grown, who grew it, who grew it, who packaged it, I think is a really interesting thing for us to think about more and I you know and and to and to and to work in the whole food chain more about how we can improve that flow of information so customers have that transparency and that insight um into into their lives so I think there were loads of really interesting trends that there was picked up in the Innova piece but that sort of balance between takeaways and health and also that call for transparency were the two things that I was uh, I was going to pick out. I love those picks and um, partly because um, I, I don't know if anyone else got one, but I got a, a great bit of direct mail, which isn't great for our podcast listeners, but if you're watching on YouTube, you're seeing it. Um, for listeners of the podcast, Laura is holding up a giant sausage roll. <laughs> I am, which uh, came through the door. Unfortunately, it's, it's paper is not edible. Uh, came through the um, the door last week saying, let the good times roll. And it's, um, as, as you say, Sophie, it's, it's pushing Greg's and Justy and you can uh, get Greg's delivered to your door for £1.99. And uh, it's just that connectivity now and in, the, in your second pick, perfect uh, in terms of that whole omni-channel it talks about mm, and the fact that we're absolutely. across so many different um, routes now. It's not just... Yeah, going in the Greg's for a sausage roll, it's getting them delivered to your door as well. And uh, yeah, it resonated with me that I have all these great healthy ideas of all this stuff I'm definitely going to do and all this healthy eating. But yeah, I'll still uh, treat myself to a McFlurry on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I thought was what was so interesting in the Times article as well as they talk about how breakfast occasions have become an increasing factor mm. for, for operators like Just Eat as well, which I think is really interesting. I, I have to say, I, it had not occurred to me. I don't think it would naturally occur to me to... Um, order breakfast takeaway but I think it's fascinating that yeah we're, we're not just seeing a wider range of products being made available but actually that sort of sense of no these services are um, services that we use for a whole variety of occasions um, and, and yeah for far more occasions than we, ha we perhaps would have done uh, traditionally um, I think is, is is really interesting I'd love to know what kind of um, what sorts of orders get made um, for breakfast I think that'd be really fascinating um, to see I was imagining it that will be like lots of slightly hungover people just feeling that they actually really needed a sausage egg McMuffin and they couldn't quite get to the get to McDonald's to get one so <laughs> that's what I was sort of visualizing at that point but um yeah a really really fascinating and I think as you say just the way that we have all changed our habits so rapidly this year is just it's just fascinating there hasn't surely been a time like it you know and, and that, that, that then has, has had to then knock on to the people within the food chain who are there to cater for it but um you know that sort of speed of delivering that sort of change and in innovation that's happened this year has been incredible yeah and I think the point you raised about transparency and is is really important as well and I think what's so exciting about some of the technological innovation is about how we can make that information um, around traceability, transparency, available to consumers on demand. Mm -hmm. Because I think at the moment, so much focus is still about that on-pack space. And it's sort of, there's a trade-off, isn't there, in terms of how, me how much messaging, how much information you mm -hmm. can put on there and, you know, what you prioritise. Um, whereas I think if you, if you capture a wider range of data and you have really great ways for consumers to interact with that data and ask questions and get the, the information they're looking for specifically, 
really, rather than relying on that uh, that pack to communicate everything. Um, I, I really feel like that there's an opportunity there to just get consumers to engage with where their food comes from on, on, a, on a deeper level than we're perhaps seeing today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it was a really great point. I mean, there are some very exciting things in the blockchain sort of space that's been talked about. And uh, I remember sort of reading or listening to something once where it talked about the possibility of blockchain even being able to, you know, uh, have a customer looking at a looking at a QR code and giving the tip back to the coffee farmer that originally produced that bean. And I just think that's incredibly exciting, real, really uh, amazing things for the future. Julia, what's your second pick this week? So my second pick this week is from The Economist. It's a little bit obscure, um, but it's a really interesting piece titled Does Naming a Thing Help You Understand It? Uh, Which is a, a fairly complex philosophical and linguistic question that certainly takes us beyond gracery. Um, The reason it caught my eye is because the article is looking at this question specifically through the lens of wine and naming conventions and to an extent sort of product descriptions for wines. And it's essentially saying uh, wine terminology can be pretty florid, um, is often mocked, but it does, you know, does it actually serve an important purpose? Does this kind of language help wine drinkers, wine experts understand and appreciate the wine they're drinking in a way that simply wouldn't be possible if this specific wine vocabulary didn't exist? And interestingly, and this is the reason The Economist is writing about this now, There's a new study out looking at wine experts and the labels, the language they're using to make sense of what they're tasting. And what the researchers did is give wine experts and also a group of amateurs a number of wines and wine-related flavours to smell. And some of them were told to name whatever they were smelling, vanilla, for example, and others were told not to name them. And then they were given a distraction to clear their minds and then given a chance afterwards to sort of recollect what they had smelled. And the experts, as you would expect, performed better than the amateurs, but those who articulated their thoughts did no better than those who had not. And the researchers then did a second experiment, which also showed that naming flavours or aromas did not appear to be linked to people's ability to make sense of what they'd smelled or tasted. They did observe, however, that this doesn't mean wine-specific language is useless. Um, And in fact, wine experts, as as you would uh, imagine, do in fact describe wines more consistently than amateurs do. All of which is quite interesting. But it also, I think, chimes with a wider debate we're having about language and product descriptions at the moment. Um, More specifically, whether a plant-based patty should be called a burger and whether you can have a vegan sausage. And, you know, as we're recording this, we're waiting for that European Parliament vote on um, on precisely that, that point. But, you know, it's such an interesting battleground. And I think it's really interesting to see product specific language. Um be at the centre of this kind of debate, Um, you know, because, of course, for all sorts of ideological reasons, but also it does ultimately tie back, I think, to that core question that this article raises and that these researchers and their wine experts were asking, which is, you know, to what extent does the language we use affect how we perceive certain things and the value we see in in certain products and, uh, and certain items? So, a slightly obscure one, but I think really, really interesting in the context of that debate around language that we're seeing in other sectors at the moment as well. Sophie, what did you make of it? 
Well, I have to say, as you say, it was um, it was quite hard to read. So I did have to read it about four times before I was like, oh, OK, I think I get this now. But uh, and so but I think it was a really fascinating sort of philosophical question, really. Um, I do, you know, just think about it when you think about the wine itself. I really do think I could do with a little tick list of wine words to use, because I think I do tend to just end up saying fruity, nice, oaky, and that's kind of it. And then I just probably drink it. But um, it was, uh, but it was a really interesting sort of piece to 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 get round. I think um, we all need to have common words that we all understand. So you know, whether whether at least uh, you say at the end of the EU ruling, a sausage or a vegan sausage is called such. At least we can then visualise in our head what that looks like. You know, what does is this, what does that word describe in our minds? What does that image look like when we hear that word? And uh, I suppose that's it, isn't it? It's the, it's the mental pictures that you can associate with the words that you use, and then how that performs that common language that everybody can then suddenly understand. And I guess that comes across the whole power of communication. We have to have a few words that have common understanding so we can all be part of the same club. Otherwise it does become too exclusive and perhaps we aren't able to articulate what it is that we mean. And you know, when you're then coming down to grocery and wanting to sell something, well actually you need as many people as possible to understand what that word is trying to describe. So uh, so I thought, I thought it was, yeah, a very interesting article. Certainly made you think quite a lot. Nora, what's your second pick? Uh, my second pick this week is from the BBC, uh, and it's an article entitled I'm Sick of Influencers Asking for Free Cake. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's a really interesting article, uh, all featured around uh, Reshmi Bennett, uh, and she's a baker uh, in London, and she's been been asked more and more, particularly um, through the uh, pandemic and, and I guess over the last few weeks as well, to give um, Instagram influencers free products. Um, and she's saying that this demand is growing and growing, particularly for bespoke baking of products, and they come in and, and ask for something that's Instagram worthy. Um, and she's had a bit of an online storm because basically she started to call this out uh, and she's sick of folks asking for freebies. Um, and it's interesting, she has tried collaborations with influencers before, but she felt that that didn't particularly work for her business. Uh, and she never had anyone coming into her store saying, I've seen you, your product or your business off the result of seeing it online. Um, and what the article does is it uses her as a bit of a, a case study, which is which is fascinating in itself. Um, but then it goes into a bit more about the influencer market, which I always feel from a consumer angle, you, you see you know, whoever you channel, follow on your social channels, but to look at it more broadly, there's a Forbes um, stat in the, the article, it says predicts the huge growth in influencer space, and by 2022, it'll be worth 11 billion. Um, and then it talks about actually, some of these um, businesses are uh, expanding into a, a big pool of influencers. And it gives an example in the article of a company that had used 350 influencers and given away uh, £20,000 worth of stock. Um, and that worked really well for them rather than just having one big name. And how actually, if you get a, an influencer that has a trusted rate card and is really um, transparent about what they charge, and a, an example in the uh, in the article was between uh, 200 and £600 a post on Instagram, um, then that can actually work and making sure you pick influencers that are going to be experts in their field and have credibility with their audiences. 
And there's a bit of negativity in the article about, you know, there's a lot of saturation in the market and there's people that maybe pick um, the wrong influencers that are just uh, maybe charging a, a bit more than rate card or are not transparent and it doesn't necessarily work for businesses. And, and I think it's really challenging for businesses at the moment because um, we're in a new normal, whatever that is, uh, and people are looking for different routes to access customers. And we spoke about, you know, Greg's in direct mail earlier um that they are making big marketing decisions but and what does the, the influencer space look like and linking it back to grocery we don't see a huge amount of influences in grocery maybe a bit for the brands but it's it, it's a big decision to try and pin a, a, a huge company onto the faces of of, of of a few celebrities and i suppose that the best you think is m&s and them having the likes of Paddy McGuinness and Amanda Holden and Emma Willis in their stable and, and doing different things around them. Do, do you think um, it's something that could grow the influencer market um, for, for grocery, Sophie, or do you think it's more something that the brands will tag on to in time? Yeah, I thought this was a, a really interesting article altogether, actually. It was, uh, and I was really pleased that you'd sort of uh, recommend this to read, because for one thing as well, um, my daughter just watches so many of these social influencers. And I just keep saying to her, but you're just watching a series of adverts. You know, why Why is this fun? And she's like, oh, you just, just have no idea in the way that teenage daughters do to their mothers. So, uh, you know, but I, so I thought that was really fascinating and also sort of list, lifting the lid on this whole sort of, well, new dimension of product marketing, really. You know, the whole the rate cards and, uh, and you know, and how it works as, as, a, as a business. You know, it's not just sort of like something fun on social media, just... Um, and I also just thought just in, in reflection about um, about the different experiences people had had in the article about about sort of the success or otherwise of, of these influences. I guess it's sort of the same as any other sort of advert that you're going to place. You, you need to do your homework. You need to understand who has that who has the influence that they say they do. You know, you wouldn't place a newspaper advert without knowing what its circulation was and what its readership was and where your advert was going to be placed and how many sort of other types of people they've reached before. So all of those other sort of context questions. And it's it's sort of a similar thing. It's just a different channel. So I suppose some of it's about us catching up perhaps as business to to this trend that has maybe gone before some of it, some some businesses are ready for it. Um, it's interesting what you say though in terms of grocery. I have seen via uh, my daughter um, a bits of grocery products on sort of social influencers, but particularly for brands, you know, and sort of like brands having it's the best chocolate bar I've ever eaten. Oh my god, you know, which is uh, which is how it's sort of been used, but you know, clearly very effectively. Um, and uh, I think um, we're just getting used to these people being in our lives, and so I really could see a place for this in certain elements of grocery marketing again perhaps more those special occasions those treats those trading up purchases where you're going to sort of need somebody to almost think yeah this is a great person this, this person I'd like to follow thinks it's a brilliant product to go for so I'll also use this in my you know sort of treat my special dinner my baking whatever it else it may be so yeah I thought, I thought it was fascinating a really really interesting article and in this sort of whole piece of our online lives that we have now. 
I, I love the article as well. I mean, it's especially the, the beginning bit when you talk about the experience of that poor London baker being hassled for free cake. You just think, what are these people on? The, the level of entitlement to just rock up at this poor woman's business and demand free personalized cakes. I mean, this, uh, that's um, yeah, quite something. And um, what I thought was so interesting, though, is that they, they're talking about this shift in the influencer market, which we've seen for quite some time, away to an extent from those really, really big names where it's about, you know, who is the biggest star? Who's got a bazillion followers um, and actually towards those micro influencers um, that are able to communicate about product choice a little bit more authentically where maybe you only have a few thousand influencers but they are very much in a particular group of consumers that you're trying to target where you've got an influencer who um, has great credibility, um, really knows their audience, gets fantastic engagement and is able to help a brand or a retailer, um, whatever it might be, reach their audience much more effectively, even though they don't have that sort of big headline figures. It does, of course, add so much more complexity into your media planning because you don't have that big national newspaper or that big, you know, TV channel. You can't even look at these people's Instagram reach or, or social media reach. You really have to do, as you say, so for your homework and identify these kind of groups of consumers and the influencers that truly speak to them um, and to to then to then run these campaigns. So I think it's fascinating, but it sounds like it's just added so so many layers of complexity to this and we're not even talking about the metrics you might need to uh, use to to measure whether any of it is actually effective as well so um yeah fascinating and, and such a dynamic and fast-moving market as well mm-hmm. sophie it's been brilliant to have you on thank you so much for joining us well thank you i've had a really really interesting time talking with you it's been great so thanks for asking Thank you so much. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.